Welcome to today's Daytime Dialogues. And it's a real pleasure to welcome a former Chicagoan back to our broadcast. Sarah Weiss Maudi is a diplomat. In fact, several years ago when I was on a conference of the president's tour in Israel, I was in the foreign ministry in Yerushalayim. And all of a sudden, there she is doing a presentation to all of the presidents of, uh, of the major organizations of America. She has had very significant roles that we may not realize because of some of the, the things she does behind the scenes, but even dealing with maritime law and when she was based out of Yerushalayim. And now she is posted as part of the Israeli mission to the United Nations. And she just assumed a very significant role as the vice chair of Legal legal affairs with the official. Uh, the, the the UN is is um, the General Assembly. People don't know this is actually divided into six committees, and the sixth committee is the legal committee. And I was appointed the vice chair, uh, presenting all the Western and other groups. Western Western Europe and others group, and she is the first Israeli woman to have assumed that role, which is not only a coup for the state of Israel, but it's also a very very prominent statement about where Israel stands today in the United Nations and things it's able to do. So Sarah, it's great to welcome you. And I'm going to give a shout out to your mother and father who most likely are also watch watching this to Myra and, I and Dr. Ira Weiss and Skokie. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for hosting me. Oh, it's great. I, so let's just start with the United Nations. Today is a big day, you know, the day after elections in the United States, but no one knows what's going on yet. So we can talk about the United Nations without being distracted. What's going on with Israel and the United Nations? Are we gaining because of the Abraham Accords? Are things changing? What do you see? So I oftentimes give a lecture about Israel, um, UN relations, and I call it like the Amos O's book, uh, a story of dark and light and of love and darkness. Um, because I think that the at the UN, there are definitely built in challenges um, facing Israel, but at the same time, there are definite opportunities. Um, I think many of you know about the challenges that Israel faces. I, I, I will say as a, as a career diplomat, um, I worked a lot back in the Israel foreign ministry on bilateral and regional issues, but really didn't have as much multilateral experience. And it's an entirely different ball game. You can have a situation where you have excellent bilateral relations with a certain country, but then you get to the bilateral stage and all of a sudden that co same country um, ends up voting against Israel. And a lot of that has to do with built in um, voting dynamics. Uh, as, a, as a high school principal, you will get this very much. I, when I'm talking to high school groups or college groups, so it's like the cafeteria in, in high school. You know, there's the table with the jocks and the table with the cool kids and the table with the more cerebral kids, but you need to have a table or you're all alone. And Israel for many years didn't have a table to sit at at the UN. Um, we weren't part of any regional group. The way I got elected just recently actually is because we belong to the Western European and other group since the year 2000. But before that, we couldn't be on any influential group at the UN. We couldn't be on the budgetary committee or the legal committee or what have you. And two of my colleagues last year were vice chairs for, the, for, for other committees at the UN, um, budgetary and development. So, so what happens at the UN really in terms of the sort of negative dynamics is that oftentimes countries vote as a group. There's a sort of natural balance between 
develop, developing countries and developed countries. And there's sort of a divide there on the voting, but even within those two groups, there are subgroups. So what drives the developing countries is oftentimes an alliance between Arab states and Islamic states that they sort of tilt the balance against Israel. So there can be just a vote on, you know, the, the sun is purple with pink spots and it's Israel's fault. And because of that dynamic, they'll vote to condemn Israel for that. On the Western side, you also have subgroups like the European group. They, they like to vote together. So even if you have one European state that holds out, that doesn't want to do the right thing and vote against, uh, vote against Israel, they will sometimes just abstain because that one, uh, because they want to seek consensus. They don't want to go against um, the consensus dynamic. When the Canadians, Australians, New Zealand, they vote as a group, the Nords vote as a group, and that creates a certain dynamic as well. So there, there's obvious challenges, a, a lot of them based upon how votes work at the UN. Um, there's also the dynamic in the Security Council. Um, and there's a lot of talk about that both in the Israeli context and beyond. Um, you have in the Security Council, you have the five members who have a veto, Russia, China, France, the, the United Kingdom and the United States, the victors of World War II. Um, and sometimes that works in Israel's favor and that the United States can issue a veto on, on um, decisions against Israel and the Security Council decisions can be binding from an international law point of view. But there's also a lot of objective criticism about the fact that that dynamic creates a certain amount of impotence from the Security Council. Like for example, on Syria, there's been nothing done on Syria because of a Russian veto or why you can't get Hamas or Hezbollah designated as a terrorist organization because of vetoes in the Security Council. Now, in terms of the, I talked about the story of love in darkness, there's also opportunities for Israel. And this very much ties into your question about the opportunities now with the new Abraham Accords. Um, I, I think even before I, I got to the UN, I didn't realize the potential when, and it's a little bit different now during COVID, but when you're going into the United Nations every day as Israel, and you're meeting up casually with countries, many of which you don't have relations with, um, that presents a lot of opportunities to sow the seeds of peace and to sow the seeds of closer relations. And you can really, in a sort of casual way, end up having a coffee with a colleague of a country that you don't have relations with. Um, so although, you know, we were all surprised, diplomats too, by this, these new peace agreements, we woke up in the morning, um, one of my colleagues laughed and said, is Israel, we sometimes wake up in the morning and wonder, is there going to be a surprise war? And we'll have to explain that at the UN but we woke up and there was surprise peace. A lot of our work is actually getting ready for those new peace, uh, pieces um, in that we are able to reach out um, and, and create contacts with countries we don't have relations with. So even though you know, we announced that we were having peace with UAE and even Sudan normalization, I actually had a relationship with the legal advisors before that happened. And I obviously, without going into detail and naming names, have other relations with countries that we don't have relations with. And it's, it's really a, a very fertile ground um, for doing that, particularly as Israel, that we have fewer opportunities to sort of connect with these countries. Well, there's a feeling, you know, growing up, the United Nations was an ideal and everything was wonderful about the United Nations and UNICEF and we would go on and on. But then in the more recent decades, the United Nations was, um, let's say not our favorite organization in the world, whether it was originally Zionism and racism or other things that have taken place, or even the, the Obama administration, the, the, uh, the resolution that was passed condemning Israel as well. Um, 
I guess my question is today, is the United Nations a major uh, opportunity for the state of Israel? Is it something that we should be look, looking to re-engage and to understand, or is it just is? So I'm going to answer that both from an Israeli perspective and sort of a global perspective. I, I would say from an Israeli perspective, you can't talk about the UN as just one, one entity. Um, there's a range of Israeli experiences at the UN. Um, some are very, very positive and some are very, very negative. If we look at sort of the most extreme example, which is the Human Rights Council in Geneva, that's a body where 47 countries sit, many of them like Venezuela with horrible human rights records. They obviously don't want to talk about their own um, human rights record. And so Israel is sort of the automatic punching bag there. Israel is the only country in that forum, for example, that has a state-specific agenda item. So everyone else, when they're having deals, will talk under general agenda items. With Israel, it will be under agenda item seven, which is specifically towards Israel. Over half of the investigations of that body have been um, focused upon Israel. Over half the resolutions condemning countries have been focused on Israel. And, and I say to groups that are even um, critical of Israel, you know, even if you're gonna be very critical of Israel, to say that Israel is responsible for more than half of the world human rights violation, I think you would agree is ridiculous where they have a line this long and I have a bar graph when I do a PowerPoint presentation, you know, for Israel and then a, a line this short for Syria. I mean, I think that anyone who's a serious person and committed to human rights, and by the way, Israel is party to all the major human rights treaties and we have to report when I was the director of the international law department back in Jerusalem, my team was the one in charge of preparing those reports and reporting. So that's on one side. But then there are all sorts of positive forum, forums that we, we participate in at the UN. For example, Israel is a very strong actor. The second committee deals with development. Um, Israel is very strong in the world of development. Um, and we really bring the water technology, green technology, agriculture, and we try to you know, really contribute there as a, as a member of the international community. Likewise, I'm not only the legal advisor, I'm also Israel's counterterrorism expert at the UN, and I participate in lots of different discussions on counterterrorism. And there we have excellent and positive cooperation. Um, Israel runs workshops to train. We did a Russian language workshop to train Russian language as Russian speaking countries on counterterrorism, we send experts on trauma to speak here on, on panels. And there we really have, a, and sometimes we get training from them. We're also participating in a program. It's not just a one-way street. Um, so that's a great opportunity. So I, I wouldn't look at the UN as a monolith, um, certainly not from the Israeli perspective. Now, a sort of bigger question of, uh, that I think it, it's worthwhile to have a discussion about, and the UN this year is celebrating 75 years. So it's very much a part of the conversation the global conversation here is, you know, is, is the UN, does the UN mean something um, 75 years later? And when you look at something like Syria, um, you know, is a, is a, is a you know, a very glaring example of the body just not being able to come together and take real action when horrible war crimes and crimes against humanity are happening um, left and right. I, I think there's a lot of discussions that happen in terms of Again, you know, the, the Security Council is a relic of the victors, the balance of power, the victors of World War II. Um, questions in, in the new Europe with Brexit, why isn't Germany have a seat at the table? India has a very large segment of the world's population does not have a permanent seat at the table. Even I was, I was telling someone the other day, um, because I'm the vice chair, I get to chair meetings of our committee when the, when the chair is not around. 
And so there are six official languages at the UN. I happen to speak four of the official languages. Um, I don't speak Russian or Chinese yet, but I speak French and, and Spanish and Arabic and English. And so the UN encourages multilingualism and I thought it would be a nice diplomatic gesture. So I introduced my colleagues, they're sort of diplomatic niceties of what you say when you introduce people in those four languages. And I was telling someone this and they said, well, what languages are the official languages of the UN? So I said, French, Arabic, Spanish, English, Russian, Chinese. And so they said, what about Hindi? And what about this? And what about that? And, and there's a lot of discussion about that. I, it, is the UN based on, on sort of a reality that no longer exists? I mean, also, if you're looking at talking about a democracy and the UN represents democracy, is it fair that those five countries have veto powers and others don't? On the other hand, when we look at the General Assembly, which is a body that does sort of declarative soft law resolutions, they don't, they're not really binding, they don't have teeth in terms of international law, you see sort of also the waste of, of time and resources where, again, every country has a vote and that's another conversation. Should the smallest country have the same weight as a larger country and so on and so forth. So I think there's really, um, and, and I'm just watching, um, particularly as, as a decision maker right now at the UN, of how we're managing the COVID crisis. I believe it or not, the Western countries were obviously advocating very strongly that we should adopt a plan B if we have to go back to lockdown. And that turned into a political discussion um, where countries like Russia and Cuba said, we are not willing to agree on a virtual platform for official meetings. We want our visas to the UN. We don't want um, you know, a situation where we could be deemed virtual and we wouldn't get our visas to the UN. So, Everything is political, um, and the UN is sort of an archaic and very bureaucratic body. And I, I think that there is a discussion to be had both on the Israeli side of what the UN means for Israel, but also for the international community. So, but given how difficult it was to create a United Nations, can you ever imagine that there would be enough agreement to make adjustments even within the United Nations structure? Well, no. I mean, there's a whole body that works on UN reform. Um, but it's sort of a moot point, so long as those five countries have the veto power, um, I don't really see how it's happening. Um, there's a movement, by the way, um, of Mexico and France have led an initiative um, to try to advocate that in the Security Council, if there's a resolution about war crimes, the most serious and grave crimes, that the permanent five members would not be able to issue a veto. Now, clearly some of the permanent five members, although France is advocating for this, Others are not so sure. I would say from a lawyer's point of view, uh, although that sounds like a good idea from a moral point of view, um, from a lawyer's point of view, it's very interesting, would the Security Council be able to determine as a, a non-judicial body, what is a war crime? What is a grave crime? What is a crime against humanity? I don't think so. From an Israeli perspective, obviously that could be politically abused as well. So although it sounds very nice and it sounds like the right thing to do, there are clear issues both on the legal side and specifically if we're looking at it from an Israeli perspective or, or other, other countries that are involved in armed conflicts um, on, on sort of the right side of the law. And with your role as a diplomat in the foreign service, how long are you posted at the United Nations? So I've been here for two years. Um, I was posted in 2018. And generally speaking, Israeli diplomats serve um, three, four, or five years, you, most of us four years, and that's right now the plan. Um, sometimes it's five years is, is you have to get an approval. In recent years, Israel, the it's a matter of who the director general is. They haven't really been approving fifth years for most people. 
Um, but so, so right now it looks like we have two more years here. Um, and it, it's, it's great. I, I really, it's, for me, it's been very eye-opening. You know, I, I spent the first part of my career at the foreign ministry for over a decade in the legal department as a legal advisor. And certainly I was called in for all sorts of diplomatic meetings, but the bulk of my work, as you could imagine, was writing legal opinions, writing sometimes talking points on legal issues for diplomats to sort of dumb down the law to make it more accessible um, and, and, and understandable. Um, but this is, this is sort of diplomacy on steroids. You, you go into a building and there are 193 countries. And, and just to give you a sense, two years, I think this was one of my first experiences and very interesting. Two years ago, the United States, when Nikki Haley was here, tried to pass um, a very bare bones resolution in the General Assembly, just declarative with no political narrative in it, condemning Hamas for using human shields. Now I wanna to explain to you every year in the General Assembly, somewhere between 15 and 20 anti-Israel resolutions pass by a simple majority without even a blink of an eye. Um, the United States tried this, this resolution. It was, it was drafted very narrowly, so not to get into politics, basically just saying Hamas is bad. Um, now, I will also note that many countries around the world, although there is no designation of Hamas at the Security Council because of the veto, um, many countries around the world have a designation, a terrorist designation of, against Hamas. You know, Japan, Australia, Canada, the, the European Union, obviously the United States, Israel, Egypt, and some other Arab countries as well. Well, when we got to the, the, the General Assembly, the first thing that I learned is it is crucial as, as we work as diplomats to make positive relations with as many countries as we can, because our work leading up to this vote was to call each and every country, large and small, less important and more important, friendly or less friendly, to ask them to vote for this resolution and do a lot of lobbying. So the fact that I am friends with the legal advisor from Togo is, becomes very important, or the legal advisor from Micronesia, or the legal advisor from Palau. Um, it, it's not, you know, you might think about the legal um, committee, as you might imagine, there are certain countries that are more dominant, you know, the Russian legal advisor or the UK's legal advisor, you know, speak a lot more in the sessions. But when it comes to a vote, that doesn't matter. But we got into the UN um, and under the rules of procedure of the General Assembly, you can deem, you can, a country can raise their hand and say that they think that this resolution is an important question. And then by a majority vote, the, the General Assembly will decide, is this an important question? And if it is, the vote goes up to a two thirds vote. So that's what happened. And the minute we knew that it was gonna need a two thirds vote, the resolution, we got many votes, 80 something votes, but we didn't get the critical mass of two thirds um, to condemn Hamas. Interestingly, like a country like Egypt, which again has its own laws that outlaw the Muslim Brotherhood and Hamas is considered a branch of the Muslim Brotherhood, voted against this resolution because again, the difference between the bilateral or domestic politics and multilateral politics. So just very, very interesting. Um, I think it's been a great training in school. I, I, I now tell everyone that you need to do a stint here at the UN if you wanna be a, a, a diplomat's diplomat. Well, can you imagine going back to preparing those briefs back in Yerushalayim or do you see yourself going into the diplomatic core of, the people out there with the politics. You are a diplomat. <laughs> so I, I do that too here. I, I, I wrote a very heavy legal opinion, although my new ambassador said, okay, got to make it lighter <laughs> so that people can read it and understand it. Um, you know, I, I don't, a lot of working in a foreign ministry, especially if you do um, stints abroad, 
Um, and I see this with all my colleagues, you, you kind of don't know what's next when you get back. Um, a lot of, although I'm a civil servant, so I work with whatever ever government's in power, I don't talk about, I'm very relieved that there are no results for the election because I don't talk about not just US um, politics, but I wouldn't talk about Israeli politics either. I work for whoever is elected by the democratic government. Um, but, you know, a lot of it, my, our world changes. I, I, will, I will be lying to you if I say that there is not a different vibe when you get a new ambassador who's a political appointee versus another one who's a different political appointee or you get a different foreign minister. Um, the vibe in the office changes very fast. The opportunities change very quickly. And a lot, a lot of, I think, if, you know, if I remain um, in the foreign ministry, it would certainly be um, an, an issue of what opportunities are out there when I return and, and you know, what, what are the different, I mean, with Israel also, do not ask me, you know, what's going to be politically, you know, they, they pushed off the deciding on a budget. Um, we could very well see ourselves in another round of elections. I don't know what that would mean. Um, both for Israel and for the foreign ministry. Uh, the foreign ministry for many years, I don't know how many of you know this, um, sort of the prime minister served as the foreign minister. Um, and it, sort of from a diplomat's perspective, it was kind of difficult for us not to have a foreign minister in the ministry. We, we didn't get a lot of budgets. And, and so we're still feeling the effect of that. Um, but really with these new accords, it's sort of been giving us, and we have a new foreign minister, sort of new energies and, and hopefully that will, that will remain. Uh, so, yeah, I'd love to ask you about what are the secret things that no one knows about that you can share with us. But obviously, it wouldn't be secret. Um, <laughs> my my kids, my kids always say that too. And then when something comes out in the paper, it goes, "Do you know? Did you know about this? Did you know?" About this? I mean, tell them if I did or did not know about this. Uh -huh. but, are, there, are there things that are lesser known that are not secret that uh, that either is happening in the United Nations on behalf of Israel or happening in the Foreign Ministry on behalf? that people will hear about? Um, I mean, in terms of what's happening here, I mean, I, I think that the things that are priority issues are, are better known in terms of, I would say, if I'm gonna flag, what are some of our priority issues? Certainly Iran, number one, um, and that all that's going on with the Iran deal. Um, and, 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 and I think anyone, if you ask anyone in the ministry, what's the number one threat? and facing the region and, and actually something that led to the dynamic that sort of sowed the seeds for, for the uh, Abraham Accords even to take place, it would be the threat of Iran, which, um, you know, it, it seems quite obvious that since 2015, since the deal happened, Iran has used the dividends of, of the, the Iran deal not to sort of make a better future for its people, but really to fund its proxies throughout the region. And I don't think this is no longer an Israel specific issue. Um, you know, that's really, if you look at Yemen and if you look at Lebanon and if you look at Libya and if you look at Syria, you see Iran's hand there trying to cause instability um, and trying to, and, and just, it, it's really a global threat. It's certainly not just an Israel specific threat. So really, I think our top issue is always Iran. The second issue, which is related, is Lebanon and southern Lebanon. Um, I, this might not be on your radar, but you know, every year UNIFIL, the UN force that sits in southern Lebanon and is supposed to make sure that Hezbollah doesn't attain arms, the only body in Lebanon that's allowed to have arms is the government of Lebanon. Um, but obviously, they sit in a very precarious situation where you know they're sitting amongst Hezbollah, and their their job is not easy, and they're often prevented, sometimes even violently from checking certain what, you know, the Lebanese will call private property, but we know our arms caches and, and secret attack tunnels. Um, so 
one diplomatic achievement that we have had recently in August every year that mandate is renewed um, has been a strengthening of, of the mandate um, of UNIFIL uh, and certain requirements. The Secretary General now needs every 60 days to report on things going on with UNIFIL, needs to be reporting when their access was blocked. Um, and there's just, there's been a recognition even in language, the renewal um, uh, decision. I and mean, I pointed that out to my speechwriter, you know, the, the, our, our team speechwriter, I said, you know, you have to use this language because they are even saying in UN language that they recognize that Hezbollah is a threat. They recognize that since the whole Syria situations, arms have been struggle, smuggled like mad um, to Lebanon. So we have Iran, we have Lebanon with Hezbollah, the Iranian proxy. I think a third issue that's definitely, there've been some positive um, um, momentum here at the UN, um, which is obviously a global issue, is the issue of anti-Semitism. And I urge all of you to take a look. Um, there's actually a very remarkable um, first project of the, it's the first time that a special rapporteur on religious freedom, there are all these thematic special rapporteurs, one on human rights, on freedom of the press, but the special rapporteur on religious freedoms wrote a special report on anti-Semitism. And it's actually the first time that the UN tried to define what is anti-Semitism. And I think it's all important for all of us to take a look at it. And, and the, the new secretary general, I have to say to his credit has put this He's also um, already appointed a special representative um, for anti-Semitism and has put this high on his agenda and has also stated in no uncertain terms um, that he condemns anti-Semitism and not just saying it. Sometimes there's a long laundry list of, you know, we, we condemn attacks against religions, but not stating it as it is. Anti-Semitism is a problem specifically about, uh, you know, attacking the Jewish people. Um, How do we get a hold of that one? I, I, so I will send you a link because I have your email address now. I will send you a link um, and you will note that they also bring in, uh, for some of you might know of the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism and they cite that. Um, and there, there's a discussion and I think it's a, it, for, from a UN perspective, a very, it, it, actually I was very surprised, a very thoughtful and balanced discussion about, you know, there's always this debate, is anti-Israel activity, is that legitimate criticism or is that anti-Semitism? And they, they bring in the fact that, you know, first of all, that the denial of the Jewish people's right to self-determination is anti-Semitism, and they're very clear about that. Um, and then they also bring in a sort of nuanced discussion about, you know, where criticism of Israel draws, crosses the line and then turns into anti-Semitism. And I, I think we have to be careful not to call every criticism of Israel anti-Semitism. I certainly deal, I, I, I'll be frank with all of you that, you know, sometimes we get legitimate criticism of against Israel's policies and not all of it is anti-Semitism. Um, what I always say is that we have no problem with legitimate objective criticism. I'll give you an example from the world of human rights. Um, Israel's record about a decade ago on human trafficking was abysmal. We were in the lowest tier countries. We were on the blacklist. We were, we were not where we wanted to be and Israel had a problem and we undertook immense reform. We created a whole division in the Ministry of Justice. The woman who actually led the reform did such a great job. She was recruited by the UN. And we went from the lowest tier to the top tier country where we, we should be. Um, and that's a place that, you know what, if someone was 10 years ago talking about criticism for Israel, I would, I would say, yes, we need to look at ourselves in the mirror. On the other hand, there are certain things where Israel is certainly singled out 
particularly as we get more into the political context. But even there, there are some places where we can have a, a, a legitimate discussion. Um, so I think we have to be careful not to point at everything as anti-Semitism. I think that's rather easy to do. Um, but then there are definitely places that draw the line. And this report is really, is really unprecedented. It's remarkable. And I think it's important also for the Jewish community to embrace it. Um, and, and encourage the UN to continue their work on this subject. I mean, obviously we are seeing anti-Semitism from the left and from the right. Um, it doesn't, it's not a problem that belongs to one party or the other in any country. Um, and I think it's something that we all have to be vigilant about and keep on the agenda. So those are some things that are sort of going on at the UN, some better known, some less known. So let me ask you, when you were growing up in Skokie, went to Hillel Torah, and and the Academy, did you ever imagine you'd be doing this kind of work? Well, well, I mean, to be honest, this is my dream job. Um, I, 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 I mean, every my last job as the director of the International Law Department was also my dream job, and it was hard for me to give up that chair and come. Um, but serving at the UN was also my dream job. I always did model UN. I don't know if you if you remember this, but at the Academy, I was I was an model UN. Um, representative, and as I used to play that, and now I do it for for real. Um, and um, it, it is pretty cool. I, I had always wanted. I mean, I, I will say when I started my my education after I graduated from the academy in the early 1990s, um, right at the when the Oslo process started, and I obviously had a very good education from Hillel Torah and from the academy. I knew Hebrew quite well, pretty much fluently. Um, I knew English well, and I'd always learned things from the perspective of sort of an Israeli Jewish perspective. Um, it was very eye-opening for me to start reading from other people's perspectives. And I think a good diplomat and a good negotiator um, is open to and, and able to, uh, to consider other people's perspectives. And I definitely read a great deal from various different perspectives about the Middle East conflict. I decided that it was time as Israel's making peace to learn Arabic. And so that's what I studied for my first and second degrees. And I figured if there was going to be peace, there'd probably be a role for me. And if there wasn't going to be peace, there'd probably be a role for me too. Um, and, and I always knew since I was 15, um, I had participated. I actually wasn't a Mosheva person. I participated in a program called Chesva Keshet, um, which was run by the Israeli scouts in Israel and the army and did Gadna. And, and since then I knew that I wanted to make Aliyah. And although I did all my school training here in America, um, every summer from age 15 on, I did in Israel doing different jobs. I, I tell people who want to make Aliyah, it, you can't be naive about it. You have to go with a game plan. You have to go with a job lined up. And I really tried very hard to make that happen. And, and thank God it did. So, well, so here I, I am. Our time, Sarah, our time is up. But I just want to thank you for a lot of things. First of all, for this half hour, but also thank you for the important work you're doing for the pride that you bring to your former community back here in Chicago in the Midwest, and for the mere fact that you provide a model of what people can accomplish with a lot of hard work and a lot of passion and what they can accomplish on behalf of all of Claudia Yisrael and Medinat Yisrael. So I thank you for your time. I wish you a lot of success in the future. And you have a presentation today at the United Nations. It should go very, very well. Thank you so very much, Sarah, for being with us. Thank you. I have to go practice my speech, but I'm, I'm very much honored, particularly from all of that coming from you. It means a great deal to me. And I, I really owe you a great deal for my education and the opportunities that you gave to me. So I, it's, this is a good way to do a hakarat tov. And I thank you and I thank everyone and wish everyone good health. Um, and, and I hope 
everything goes smoothly in the, in the, in the upcoming days. So thank be, you. Thank all you right. very much. Bye-bye. Good to see you. Bye. Good to see you. Thank you for your time.